Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies. Our guest today is Dr. Ava Mrochek, author of The Literary Imagination in Jewish Antiquity. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls revealed a world of early Jewish writing larger than the Bible, from multiple versions of biblical texts to revealed books. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies. Our guest today is Dr. Ava Mrochek, author of The Literary Imagination in Jewish Antiquity. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls revealed a world of early Jewish writing larger than the Bible, from multiple versions of biblical texts to revealed books not found in our canon. Despite this diversity, the way we read Second Temple Jewish literature remains constrained by two anachronistic categories, a teleological one, Bible, and a bibliographic one, book. The literary imagination in Jewish antiquity suggests ways of thinking about how Jews understood their own literature before these categories had emerged. In many Jewish texts, there is an awareness of a vast tradition of divine writings found in multiple locations that is only partially revealed in available scribal collections. Ancient heroes such as David are imagined not simply as scriptural authors, but as multidimensional characters who come to be known as great writers who are honored as founders of growing textual traditions. Scribes recognize the divine origin of texts, such as the Enoch literature and other writings revealed to ancient patriarchs, which present themselves not as derivative of the material that we now call biblical, but prior to it. Sacred writing stretches back to the dawn of time, yet new discoveries are always around the corner. Using familiar sources, such as the Psalms, Ben Sirah, and Jubilees, Ava Mrochek tells an unfamiliar story about sacred writing not bound in a Bible. In listening to the way ancient writers describe their own literature, rife with their own metaphors and narratives about writing, the literary imagination in Jewish antiquity also argues for greater suppleness in our own scholarly imagination, no longer bound by modern canonical and bibliographic assumptions. The literary imagination in Jewish antiquity is already making its mark on the study of ancient Jewish antiquity and biblical studies more broadly conceived. A panel of scholars recently convened at the annual Society of Biblical Literature meeting to discuss the impact of the work on the study of Second Temple literature, and it was just announced this week that Dr. Mrochek's work was awarded the prestigious Manfred Lautenschläger Award for Theological Promise. The accolade is given by the University of Heidelberg. Please join me in congratulating Dr. Mrochek and welcoming her to the New Books Network. Hello, Dr. Mrochek. Hi, Philip. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being on. Uh, We have a tradition here. We always open with an opportunity for our authors to say a little bit about their own background and particularly how they became interested in their field of study. So how did you come to be fascinated with Judaism in antiquity? Well, it's a bit of a long story, and it uh, really starts with a very, very early interest in the history of religion and myth. Um, My parents immigrated from Poland in the 80s, and before before we settled in Canada, they did various kinds of work, uh, agricultural work and construction 
work in Austria and Norway and Sweden. We were kind of just, uh, we were a little bit nomadic. Um, my dad did the construction and renovation. When I was little, he'd sometimes take me along with him to his work sites because there was nothing else to do with me. Um, and he'd just have me sit and read while he did drywall or painting. And uh, he first gave me this book on Greek and Roman mythology, kind of in hopes that it would just let me pass the time. And I was eight years old, and I just got completely mesmerized by trying to imagine myself into this world where those ideas were part of the fabric of culture. Um, and, you know, it continued in high school. I had this world religions teacher who was uh, fantastic, opened my eyes to these different ways that people organized and made meanings out of their worlds. Um, and I ended up doing a master's degree in uh, modern Jewish philosophy. And I plan to continue to do a Ph.D. in that, looking at how Jewish thinkers of the 20th century used traditional biblical narratives as, as sources for philosophy, sources for making sense of their own world. But I, I stumbled almost by accident into a class on ancient Judaism with uh, Professor Hindi Nyman, uh, who taught me about really the richness of both biblical and non-biblical ancient literature. And we read poetry and narrative, uh, focusing especially on ancient Jewish reactions to destruction and catastrophe. And there was such rage and resistance and, and and hope in that literature. And it really fulfilled the kind of aesthetic and philosophical interest that I had in how people use stories and use metaphors to describe and deal with um really broken world. And I stayed to do my PhD with her and uh, got really solid training in philology um, and also theoretical and comparative approaches at the Center for the Study of Religion there. Thanks. You're to, to turn to the work itself, your work suggests that scholars of Second Temple Judaism really struggle to see and to conceptualize the literature produced during this critical period clearly. Uh, you assert there are really two main obstacles to this clearer view, one religious uh, and the other bibliographic, or one teleological and the other bibliographic. Maybe you can talk about those terms in some degree uh, and some detail. What, what do you mean by these uh, these terms? Well, in terms of the religious or teleological presuppositions, this is really about how our starting point is very often the Bible. Uh, we start with where we are and what we have, and we have the Bible, and that's what most of us are interested in when we come to the field. And so we trace this idea back to um, to look at its origins, where it came from, how it was composed and transmitted, um, and what it has meant to people, how it's been interpreted. And, and, and that's all fine. Uh, but our own research into the period that I'm interested in, the Second Temple period, Hellenistic and early Roman times, um, it shows that there was no such concept as the Bible, until well into the common era for both Jews and Christians. Uh, we know that early Jewish texts show us a really strong interest in the idea of revealed writing. Um, it's not that there was an oral culture and then we had the Bible after that. Uh, they were very interested in writing the idea of sacred text. But we also know that that sacred text was not shaped like the Tanakh or the Bible. Um, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, that many texts were in a state of flux with uh, different editions, let's say uh, different editions of Jeremiah or Exodus, preserved side by side with no apparent conflict. And we know also that people recognized many more texts as divinely inspired than just what ended up in the biblical canon. Uh, so sacred texts were out there. They were really important, but they weren't gathered yet into a defined or specific corpus. There wasn't this idea of a clear dividing line between biblical and non-biblical because people didn't have that concept yet. 
Uh, and this isn't really new at all. Uh, I'm certainly not the first to argue this. Uh, John Barton, Michael Stone, Robert Kraft, they've been pointing this out for 30 or 40 years. But uh, we might recognize that there wasn't a Bible yet at this time, but we still really sort the world of early Jewish literature as if there was. Um, the Bible is so powerful in our imaginations that it becomes a kind of mental magnet. It organizes an entire literary culture kind of around itself, with itself at the center. And that culture didn't yet organize itself that way. Um, of course, part of the issue that um, the Bible is what most people are interested when they come to the field. Um, and that's fine. Uh, and it's not only because many people have religious commitments to Jewish and Christian scriptures, but it's also because our own mental architecture culturally is like that. It's been hard to imagine how we can think of sacred writing without binding it into the Bible. That's our iconic example of what sacred text looks like. It's hard to imagine a world of sacred text that's configured any differently than this iconic holy book. Um, and this is the problem. We don't have one iconic fixed book in this era, but instead a larger, broader literary world of different textual traditions. Um, we have a strong sense of cultural importance of scripture and writing. So we really have to figure out a way to break apart this, uh, this connection between stability and containment and sacredness. Uh, those things go together in our own minds, but stability and containment and sacredness weren't necessarily didn't necessarily go together in the imaginations of ancient people. Um, so this bibliographic constraint, this idea of the book as a unit, which is so closely tied to the Bible as an iconic book, is really another thing that makes it difficult for us. Uh, for us, kind of culturally, commonly, a book is this specific object, right, that's basically fixed, something that um, unites uh, specific verbal content, the words, uh, an author, and a physical object. So, for example, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, right? You expect the same text, the same beginning and end, and it's ascribed to its authorial creator. But these are categories that uh, don't really fit ancient texts. Uh, the figure of the author isn't always the most important way of sorting text into categories. We don't necessarily have coherent documents that are stable, but developing collections or kind of ongoing projects, uh, we can't always pinpoint the exact identity of a text because many times it's a bit of a shapeshifter without a way to pinpoint um, a kind of sense of an official edition of what the text actually is. So one of the things you, you do is you argue that when we call these Second Temple literary works books, right, that we're, not, we're really engaging in metaphorical speech, that it's, it's not simply enough to say, well, this is anachronistic to call them books, but this is actually metaphorical speech. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we've seen uh, since the 1990s uh, when people started to theorize what the digital world and hypertext was doing to our really fundamental ideas of what texts are. Uh, we really started to see that a book is only one very specific kind of idea, one very specific kind of mental container in which we keep text. And it's related to a particular material form, a particular method of production of text in the last 500 years in the West. So it's a very particular historically contingent idea. Um, and this doesn't apply to all texts, of course. An online comment thread is a different kind of textual object from a print codex. It has a different idea about authorship, about beginnings and endings, 
stability and development has different possibilities for reception and engagement by its readers. So when that happened, when that shift to digital text happened, people started to see just how much the print codex, right, the book between two covers, um, really informed our ideas and assumptions about texts of every kind that don't necessarily fit that paradigm. Um, So when I talk about metaphors, book as metaphor, to use a metaphor basically is to describe and understand one thing in terms of another. So when we say book, we're really bringing in the entire history of the book as we know it in our culture, its whole meaning and lived experience, the, the codex, print, copyright, widespread literacy, scholarly editing, uh, and, and so on. So calling something from a scroll-based scribal culture without copyright law, with limited literacy, a book, is almost as much of a metaphor as, you know, calling a piece of online fiction a book. There are some ways it fits, and some ways it really doesn't. And some things about uh, about it are invisible when that's the only way you think about it. So I think trying a new metaphor can help. And this isn't the same as just stripping away anachronisms and getting to some kind of bare and basic uh, idea of what ancient people really thought. I don't think we really can fully avoid anachronism, and I'm not claiming to be doing away with the residue of 2,000 years to reveal some pure direct picture. Uh, but I think that what we can do and what I try to do in the book is to identify that our categories are categories and that they reveal some aspects of this profoundly different culture, but never give us a a direct undistorted view. And so sometimes switching up the categories, kind of uh, twisting the kaleidoscope, uh, for example, thinking about archives, databases, portfolios, projects rather than books, that can show us some other aspects of the way that ancient people experienced and imagined their own writing that that book can't. Now, these are also metaphors. And at some point, they also break down. There are some things that they obscure. But maybe before that they break down, they can help us see a few things that used to be hidden. Well, let's talk about some of the, the, the sort of data, the evidence that you bring to this project. It's, it's routinely said that the Book of Psalms, for instance, was the most popular book found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. You think this statement is really incorrect, Um why do you say that? What sort of argument are you making here? Well, you're right, Philip. Uh, all beginning students of the scrolls know this fact. Um, the most popular biblical book found at Qumran was the book of Psalms at 36 copies. This is really kind of the uh, uh, the statement that's repeated in most textbooks. But it's it's something that my my colleague in Finland, Mika Payunen, has called a statistical illusion. And let me explain what I mean by that. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, there are many, many fragments ranging from a couple of letters to a lot to long scrolls that contain psalms. Uh, and these are collected together uh, in a familiar list of 36 manuscripts. But these 36 manuscripts are not actually copies of the same work. They're fragments with various scopes and contents. Uh, some of them are uh, contain only a line from a single psalm, and one of them contains 50 compositions, and they range widely in between that. But not one of them, not one of these 36 representations, is a representation of the Book of Psalms as such. Um, so these fragments didn't contain all or most of the psalms in what we call the Psalter, but there are these diverse collections with both canonical and non-canonical compositions mixed into various 
collections. Uh, some contain one psalm, some four or ten or fifty in different orders, and they don't present our sequence and scope of psalms and often not the same inventory. Fourteen uh, of the 36 in the list contain part of only one psalm, right? Three are copies of Psalm 119, the long wisdom psalm alone, and only six of them preserve ten or more compositions. And the longer collections really differ in order and contents and extent from the biblical text. So we don't actually have any manuscripts that represent the book of Psalms at all. I don't think that that's an idea that people had at the time. We don't have a reference to the book of Psalms as a corpus uh, by that name until the Common Era, until the New Testament and rabbinic literature. And among those 36 uh, fragments that are counted as, as books of Psalms, a couple of them are not psalm scrolls at all, but, uh, for example, there's an exorcism ritual that incorporates a single psalm. They come in different genres. So we've got these many collections of various lengths compiled for different purposes. And to group these diverse scrolls and fragments into uh, 36 copies of the Psalter, it really creates a mirage. Uh, it creates a, a mirage of this unified book. That doesn't exist. Uh, psalms are a popular genre, but the book of psalms, isn't actually attested. Um, and so how do we explain this misleading idea about these 36 representations or even copies? It's, it's really clear once you see the information, but sometimes we can only see what we're looking for, right? So since we begin as biblical scholars with the biblical Psalter as a unit, that's what we see reflected in the fragments. Um, I, I actually like to compare this to, uh, to this old story. Um, uh, the six blindfolded men and an elephant. It's actually an old Indian story. It's about how if you're looking uh, only at parts, you can't see the whole. Um, so the story goes that these six blindfolded men feel different parts of an elephant, and they don't know that it's a whole elephant. One says it's a brick wall because he's touching the elephant's side. One says it's a tree because he's touching the elephant's leg. There's uh, the, 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 the trunk is a snake, the tail is a rope, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, they sense different objects, but it's really one unified object. The problem of Psalms at Qumran is exactly the opposite of the six men and the elephant, right? We are feeling just a wall, a spear, a rope, and a tree trunk, and thinking it's an elephant. We think so because we're looking for an elephant, and we know how the story ends. Um, so, for example, scholars are looking at Psalm 119, an exorcism text, a few collections of four psalms, or ten or fifty, but they count it all as the book of psalms, like the one in our Bibles. We look at different scopes and kinds of texts, but we see them as part of a unity. But there is no elephant, right? Nobody had ever seen such a creature. There's no book of psalms behind these fragments yet. There are only these different collections of various lengths and contents, and they're not copies of the same book at all. So if the Psalms weren't experienced as a book, or we don't have evidence to suggest that the Psalms were experienced as a book during the Second Temple period, per se, how else might they have been conceptualized? Well, it's absolutely clear that Psalms were a very popular genre of texts. Uh, they were copied and recopied in various ways. Uh, lots of evidence shows that, that, that psalms, especially psalms connected to King David, were considered revealed, uh, considered prophetic. But I don't think that people really uh, conceptualized them as a defined corpus. I don't think any particular scroll was really ever understood to be somehow complete, to be the psalms. Um, and 
we can really see the way that people are thinking about this quite directly in some of the texts uh, from, from Qumran. Uh, one example, my favorite example, comes from the longest psalm scroll that scholars call 11Q Psalms A. It contains 50 compositions. It comes in a completely different order from the biblical book of Psalms. Um, and 10 of the compositions aren't in the Bible at all. And near the end of that text, we have this remarkable passage praising King David, praising King David for perfection, for this kind of enlightened inspiration. And it also praises him for uh, singing and writing thousands of psalms, thousands of psalms according to the solar calendar. Um, and it says that that he sang uh, 4,050 songs that were revealed to him through prophecy. So what do we make of this? How does it tell us how people imagine psalms in, in antiquity? Well, we've got this idea of a staggering proliferation of divine text. Who's ever seen these 4,050 songs? Well, nobody. There is no scroll that we might find one day that has this number of compositions. They've never been collected in one place. They're not available in any specific particular scribal collection. It's this imagined, almost heavenly repertoire, a kind of imagined archive that's never fully present. Nobody can ever really produce or contain all of it. It's this kind of open series. Um, and so the scrolls that scribes copy, the stuff that people have access to, might be reflections, partial representations of this huge imagined revelation, but never complete, never complete containers. Um, and I think this represents a larger idea that the, to the totality of sacred writing is forever out of reach. You cannot hold it in your hand the way that you can hold our Bible. Uh, it might be reflected only piecemeal in whatever actual collections that scribes knew or had. So I think this gives us a good example of a way to think about texts that are sacred, inspired, but not stable or contained and, and not even fully available or present. You, yeah, so you bring up this, uh, this sort of coda about King David on 11Q song. Uh, connected to that discussion, this really raises the question of the conceptualization of authorship itself during the Second Temple period. So what, what, what did ancient Jews mean when they attribute a literary work to a foundational figure in this tradition? And you have this wonderful phrase that rather than text in search of authors, sometimes we have something like the opposite characters in search of stories. What, what can we say about authorship during this period? Thank you for bringing that up, because I think this project really began with that question. Uh, what did it mean to link these exemplary figures, these heroes with texts? And why did that proliferate so much? We call this phenomenon, of course, pseudepigraphy, false attribution. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, we aren't dealing with uh, a kind of dogma, a sort of belief that some figure really wrote a text, and you have to believe that. Um, I think we might be looking at, at somewhat looser and poetic symbolic associations between figures and newly composed texts. And let me explain a little bit about what I mean. Um, in the field of the academic study of religion, which sharply defines itself from theology, uh, scholars have focused a great deal on religious texts, not in terms of their of belief or metaphysics, but in terms of how these texts work to claim and hold on to power and authority, um, how texts legitimize and impose certain dogmas and require obedience uh, to hierarchies and institutions. And, and the authorial figure is kind of part of the story. To make newly written texts legitimate, uh, to make people take them seriously, their creators need to add an author to 
authorize them, right, to make them credible, to give this convincing or even coercive authority to some particular community or legal interpretation or dogma. So the idea is, look, Moses himself wrote this text. You'd better obey. Uh, so it's really important to uncover these things, these agendas, these ideologies, structures of power. And often this authorizing interest really is there. But what I think sometimes gets lost uh, in this drive to analyze from the perspective of persuasion and power is um, is the aesthetic and the kind of generative or even playful aspect of religious literature. It's religious, but it's literature as well. People like stories. Uh, and these characters of Moses and David and, and Enoch, uh, they were really the superheroes of the day, I think. Um, so I think we're not only looking at texts in, in search of authorization and legitimation by connection to these figures. We're also, as you said, looking at these characters in search of stories, in search of staging. Uh, each popular character is associated with a particular portfolio of specialties. So Enoch sees heavenly secrets. Uh, Ezra leads a community through, through uh, reconstruction. David sings and prays. Jeremiah mourns, etc. So the potential for the creation of new works connected with them is found in, in the characters themselves, and these things keep reproducing themselves um, in the stories that people want to tell and hear about them. So their biographies keep on expanding. More and more texts are linked with them, not just because the texts need to be backed up with a legitimating voice, but because the character keeps growing and keeps finding these new um, new places, new, t new textual places to act. Um, I remember my, my teacher, Hindi Nyman, talking about the production of these new texts uh, as, as a kind of fan fiction in her undergraduate classes. And uh, it seems now to, to be a pretty interesting comparative move in the field that, that people are now really thinking about um, that helps us think about religious texts, not only in terms of, of, of power and legitimation, uh, polemic and dogma, but really also a kind of positive literary drive. Um, there's a play from the 1920s by Luigi Pirandello called Six Characters in Search of an Author, where these imaginary characters show up in the playwright's imagination and they're clamoring for a stage. They're asking for a story. And to me, it was a helpful uh, comparison to how these ancient characters kind of captured people's imaginations. So with the Psalms, um, psalms are the kinds of things that David, the great man of prayer, would sing. So the attribution of psalms to David might not necessarily mean a belief or a kind of positivistic dogma that David was, in fact, the author or originator of the specific text of psalms. Uh, this does come later, but we don't have much direct evidence for this belief in the Second Temple period. Instead, we have evidence that People liked giving David new things to say and do. Uh, he was a compelling character. So a psalm might start as an anonymous, anonymous composition, and then it comes to seem like something you can imagine this beloved character singing. It could be something you could stage uh, in some episode, you know, from his story. And we see these uh, sort of stage directions in the headings to the psalms, completely generic prayers of penitence. Um, for example, they're framed with reference to events in David's life. He lends his voice to them. So you could place those words in his mouth, animate this character in that way. So a Davidic psalm is like the one you might imagine this legendary king to sing. Um, and it functions in, in an exemplary way as well. Maybe if this is something your hero, David, might sing, then, then you should sing it too. So you, you're, you're raising this question sort of of rethinking what we mean by pseudepigraphic and how we analyze that as a 
as a category with the knowledge that we we were very often uh, under-theorized in that regard until recently. But you also discuss texts that have generally not been viewed as pseudepigraphic, like, for instance, The Wisdom of Ben Sira. <clears throat> Can you briefly introduce that work and say a little bit about how named attribution of a work has generally been understood in Second Temple Studies and why you choose to take a different approach to viewing Ben Sira as an author and what it means to call Ben Sira an author? Ben Sira is an amazing example. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a text composed in Hebrew in the second century BCE, but uh, we know it better from Greek translation by somebody who presents himself as the author's grandson. Um, now, the text of Ben Sira itself, it's, it's scriptural for Catholic and Orthodox Christians, but not for Jews and Protestants, but it was pretty popular among Jews in antiquity as a kind of source of wisdom. And for the most part, I have to admit, it's kind of a boring and pompous collection of advice uh, about how to climb the social ladder as a young Judean educated man. Uh, it's, I mean, it has some really exciting aspects. It, it, it retells the history of Israel in, in, in a really interesting way. And it's got some uh, very uh, strident misogyny that kind of uh, breaks up uh, the monotony a little bit. But it's uh, it's also interesting for what it tells us about how people understood written tradition in early Judaism and to see what were the metaphors, the kinds of language that they themselves used to describe what writing tradition was. Um, now, what's unique about Ben Sira among ancient Jewish texts, as you mentioned, is that uh, while most of them are either anonymous or they're attributed to an ancient hero like Moses or Enoch, uh, here the author has given us his own name, Joshua ben Eliezer ben Sirah. It's there. This is, this is a really important uh, difference. And it's considered a huge watershed in Jewish literary history, the first authored Jewish book. But while this is very important, we actually shouldn't misunderstand what this means in his own context. Uh, ben Sirah does not present himself as an author the way that we think of as an author, right? Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, uh, an individual creator who writes a book from scratch, who owns this intellectual product, uh, puts his copyright on a finished document. Uh, that, that's not what's happening here. Uh, ben Sirah is presenting himself as a kind of collector or channel of ancient wisdom. And, and really the idea of channel is his own metaphor. Um, he uses especially metaphors of water for his transmission of tradition. Um, uh, the, the tradition is imagined as powerful rivers with these currents that can't be contained. And uh, he is imagining himself as inheriting this becoming a channel that becomes a river and goes to the sea. Uh, he also calls himself a gleaner after grape harvesters. He's following somebody else and picking up what they left and then, uh, bringing it forward himself. So what I think we have here is a sense that that his work is not a book by an author, but it's it's not a product, but a kind of multi-generational project. Um, it's not original to him and it doesn't end with him. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, really a, a kind of textual activity that has a long history. It's both ancient and ongoing and it's open to expansion and uh, uh, rearrangement by his heirs. Uh, so this inherited tradition doesn't have a beginning or an end. Um, and, and we often think in terms of modern editorial practice, either about the original text or the final form intended by an author uh, as the kind of authentic edition that we want to recover. That's the identity of the text. 
But that doesn't fit an ideology where the text isn't considered to be original or finished, but, you know, a kind of moment in a long project of wisdom that is flowing forward. I want to switch to your, your fourth chapter. You, you start to talk about what you refer to as the non-biblical library of early Judaism. I wonder if you can tell us what text you're really going to be concerned with uh, in that discussion and uh, give us a short overview of sort of how scholars have handled these works historically, where they've placed them conceptually. So in that chapter, I'm looking at texts that did not finally end up in the biblical canon, but uh, as far as we can tell, were pretty important to early Jews. Um, so, for example, texts like the books of Enoch and the book of Jubilees, which we have in many, many manuscript copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and which we know were important because they had this really robust afterlife. They were translated and used especially later by Christian communities who inherited them. And we also have many other writings that we count as part of the pseudepigrapha, uh, but that did not have their own category that was separate from the Bible during this time. Um, but in that chapter, I, I also look at references to texts that uh, we don't have access to and texts that ancient people probably also didn't have, imaginary, legendary texts, um, ancient writings that are part of the narratives that our writers present, like writings by Abraham or Jacob, uh, thousands more writings of David and Solomon, uh, the tablets in heaven, the writing that the patriarch Enoch is still working on in Eden till this day. Uh, those aren't available to us, and they likely weren't available to them either. They're legendary texts, but they do give us a glimpse of what the imagined library looked like, uh, and it didn't look much like the Tanakh at all. Um, now, in terms of how we've received texts, that did not make it into the canon of scripture, uh, the text that uh, we commonly call Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. Um, I look in that chapter at the publication history of those texts. And, and I think uh, considering the history of publication is important because the way that we receive the sources is mediated. Um, we don't, we, we never actually just get the sources naked on their own directly. They're always selected, arranged and packaged for us. And no matter how aware we are of this, this can't help but affect the way that we think about them, the way that we study them. Um, so what they have in common in their entire history of publication is that these texts, these non-biblical texts are presented as non-biblical. They're presented as a corpus that's separate from the Bible. Um, so uh, we can begin in the 17th century, really, with the, the first major collection that was called the Pseudepigrapha uh, by a German uh, German Lutheran scholar named Johann Fabricius. Uh, and Pseudepigrapha means literally false writing. And his argument, at, at least explicitly, was that um, was that these texts are different in kind from the Bible. Um, uh, texts like Enoch or Fourth Ezra, they might look a lot like the Bible. They might be trying to convince you that they're scripture, but they shouldn't be taken seriously. They're not authentic. Uh, they're supposed to be rejected because they're not actually by the authors that they are attributed to. So they're treated as forgeries, right? Completely different in kind from the biblical writings. Um, and this really starts to change over time in the 19th and uh, early 20th century, where the texts from the Second Temple period that are not biblical um, are, are considered a, a separate category of intertestamental literature, right? A kind of bridge between Old 
and New Testaments. They're also starting to be considered as background to Christianity. You have to understand this to understand how Christianity develops. And very often they're also used theologically uh, to bolster supersessionist ideas, meaning that the idea, the Christian idea that Judaism had degenerated from an earlier spiritual authenticity and was right for replacement by Christianity that brought back kind of a kind of authentic spirit. Um, and so the second temple texts are really used as examples of that, of that moment. Um, and then still later, especially in the eighties with, um, uh, James Charlesworth's uh, uh, Old Testament pseudepigrapha volumes, the tone really starts to change, and Christian and Jewish scholars both work on these volumes, on publishing this material, and uh, they're framed as a shared heritage, at, at least explicitly, and they're really kind of revalued from worthless fakes or backgrounds to Christianity to really important examples of this key era for the origins of both religions. Um, and finally, the, the last uh, uh, a publication that I consider is the 2013 uh, collection outside the Bible, uh, which is really the, the the newest publication, and it frames many of these texts as discourses about the Bible, with a real emphasis on biblical interpretation. What they show us about the earliest layers of exegesis. So it presents and frames the texts as a kind of precursor to rabbinic midrash, right? This is a kind of proto-midrash. And so it takes its place, this corpus takes its place in the history of Jewish biblical interpretation. And it's presented as a really important and rich example of that. Um, now, this is an interesting aspect of many of the texts, but it really risks flattening the chronology because most of these non-canonical texts were written before there was a division between biblical and non-biblical, and the vast majority the majority don't actually present themselves as derivative or interpretive of anything else. They're not presenting themselves as secondary. They don't have this hierarchical relationship, but but they're really alongside scripture. Um, so over the course of the publishing history, we've really revalued the non-canonical text. We don't say they're worthless now. We don't. We think they're rich and important, but we still sort them into the same exact corpus, right? Separate from the Bible, and and really in its service which wasn't the case in early Judaism. That wasn't the shape of the literary landscape. Um, in a sense, we're still squeezing these sources in the spaces between and around the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and the rabbinic corpus. Uh, so it's hard to see them as uh, constituting a literary culture of their own that didn't sort itself into these categories. Well, let's talk about one of those works, uh, one of my favorites, the Book of, of Jubilees. Uh, you you spend some time talking about this this work. Could you first of all introduce the book briefly for us and say why you think it's important for rethinking the non-biblical library of early Judaism? That is, what what does this have what what does this book have to teach us about the way Jews thought about uh, the production of literature and the value of literature uh, prior to the rise of something we might call the biblical model? So Jubilees was uh, written in the second century BCE, also in Hebrew, and um, uh, scholars knew it in, in Ethiopic translation uh, until about 15 Hebrew manuscripts were found at Qumran. So we know that it was quite prominent among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it certainly has uh, has had a very robust afterlife in translation in Christian communities. Uh, and it, it, it is, in fact, still scriptural for the Ethiopic church. Um now, what is this book about? Well, it's it's really a kind of alternative presentation of what Moses heard on Mount Sinai. Uh, in the beginning of it, the stage is set on Sinai, and Moses is sitting there writing down Revelation, 
But but here he's receiving something other than the Torah. Right? God tells the angel of the presence to dictate to Moses from the heavenly tablets. This is a kind of key concept in the book of Jubilees, that there is this eternal writing that's found in heaven, and it's uh, that is the source of, of, of scriptures that come down to earth in some way. Um, this is a, a kind of body of celestial writing. It contains both divine law and it contains the history and the future of Israel. Uh, and so the rest of the book re- relates what the angel dictates to Moses on Sinai. Um, so... And, and it does refer to to the first Torah. It, re, it refers to other uh, other scriptures that we might identify with uh, with with the Bible. Um, now, Jubilees also is clearly using the biblical text of Genesis and part of Exodus as a source. That's really clear. Sometimes Jubilees lifts entire passages verbatim from from our biblical text. So. Um, to think of the book of Jubilees as an example or as a view into a non-biblical imagination seems like a, a kind of contrarian choice, uh, right, to show how the literary imagination wasn't necessarily structured around the Bible, um, because it's really been studied almost exclusively as a text that proves it was, right, that the Bible was really central. The writer reproduces the biblical text, fills in gaps, notices uh, moments of, of, of overlap and doublets, and embellishes the narrative. So, for example, all of the women who have no names in the Bible are named in Jubilees. Um, so uh, we've really used Jubilees as a kind of parade example of how people interpreted and rewrote the Bible in early Judaism. Um, but the issue is that although Jubilees uses Genesis and Exodus, uh, it doesn't present itself as dependent on them at all. Uh, it claims to be new revelation. It claims to be sourced directly from the tablets in heaven, dictated by an angel. And when we look at the narrative inside the story world of Jubilees, we see a really important thread. We see a really important thread uh, intertwined with the history of Israel. Uh, Jubilees presents uh, a kind of legendary account of Israel's sacred writing really throughout the story, uh, where it came from, who received it, how the writing was transmitted. And the writings that Jubilees described uh, describes are not to be identified with any part of the Bible, but various legendary revealed texts that were given to various heroes. So almost every major character becomes a scribe who receives writing from angels. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, they all write stuff down. Jacob. Finally, Moses. Moses is just the last one, the latest one in this long story of of scribal revelation that's different in every generation of patriarchs. And each of these people take their place in this kind of history of continuous continuous writing. So um, I I think we have here what, what I really like to call um, a native book history, a kind of legendary uh, bibliography, um, this narrative that tells us about writing that stretches back to the dawn of time. It's passed down by various heroes and the world is full of writing. And one day you might still find more hidden somewhere. Enoch is still at it writing in Eden until the end of time. Uh, so I think here the idea of scripture in this imagined world is is much broader than anything that you can bind between two covers. There's no single text that actually encompasses everything that's been written. In your last chapter, you look at a certain number of texts which seem to maintain a sense of openness or unfinishedness even after a concept of sort of a closed canon of writings starts to become clear in the historical record. Say something about that 
open-endedness of textuality, even on the other side of canonicity for us? Well, I think this is a concept that really started to emerge quite powerfully when I was finishing the book, that maybe the emergence of canon in the first couple of centuries of the Common Era isn't necessarily such a huge chronological watershed in terms of the way we might imagine how people think about scripture. Uh, the first two indications that we have in the Jewish materials that people are now starting to think of scripture as something that is contained, as something that is specific in particular, uh, are Josephus uh, and, and Fourth Ezra um, in the late first century CE. Josephus talks about a limited corpus of scripture at 22 books, but he's quite vague about exactly what those books are. And Fourth Ezra talks about the re-revelation of 24 public books of scripture, and again, doesn't mention what what, what they are. Now, um, in in terms of Josephus, Joseph, uh, the, the number 22 is, of course, uh, symbolic. It's the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It represents uh, coherence and completeness. Um, but... And so here we have the very first indication that there is a concept that scripture is something that is contained in a specific number of books. Um, that is really important. The specific books that are part of this um, are not as important to these writers. They don't give us the list. Uh, and in fact, we know from later uh, rabbinic and patristic uh, writings that these lists were configured in various ways that added up to these particular iconic numbers. So the number, the idea of coherence of, of, of this specific uh, number of books is something that precedes the specific list of books that are part of that corpus. Um, so that's an important development, but at the very same time, even in the very same texts uh, and, and, and writers, we still have a sense that authentic sacred writing um, really flows out beyond that narrow corpus. Josephus himself is aware of many, many more texts that 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 that, that he represents or describes as authentic um, as and as inspired. So there are thousands of Solomonic works in Josephus's imagination. Uh, these are not texts that anybody can ever produce. Um, they're not available, but he does have a sense of this vastness of written revelation. Uh, Fourth Ezra as well has a sense that, that the 24 public books are only meant for the general population, but there, there are also, uh, uh, there are also, there's also a large number, 70 other books that are for, uh, the wise among the people. So we have a sense that, that what we might think of as canon, as a specific corpus of, of sacred text, it's not actually the same thing. It's not coterminous with sacred literature. Uh, sacred literature is a much broader idea, and we see this on both sides of the canonical divide. I wonder if you could think a little bit about or speak a little bit about some of the implications of your work for where the field of Second Temple studies might might be going. If we begin to think beyond the book as a metaphor alone or beyond the teleological concern with a canon, how do we how do we learn to look at these works in a new way? And what new things do you think we're going to start seeing and asking questions about? Well, I think. The idea of whether the development of a canon is truly a chronological watershed might be one of the key questions that we might want to think about. I mean, first of all, I think it's really, really important to think of the history of Jewish literature beyond canonical constraints and categories. And I think we there are there's a lot of productive work that's left to do there. Uh, what happens when we look at the evidence without 
that mental magnet of the Bible, right, with these new metaphors. And I've done that with a few case studies in, in, in my work, but there's a lot more to do. And there are a lot of texts that, that, that may not fit the paradigm that I've, that I've presented through, through my, um, my case studies. But I think the other part of, uh, of the project and something that I'm starting to think about now is what happens when there is a canon? What happens in Judaism and Christianity when there is a canon? And does that actually completely change? Uh, uh, the, the story that I'm telling here. And uh, I strongly suspect that it doesn't, because as we said with Josephus and Fourth Ezra, but also looking forward into late antiquity, there is a sense uh, in many texts that the available canon of scripture, the material that people have access to, is not necessarily considered the fullness or totality or perfection of revelation. Um, and I think we have a sense that our history of the canon, the way that we teach, the way that we talk about the development of scripture as historically contingent as something that's based in institutions and long histories of negotiation, that the, the scripture doesn't just uh, just just pop fully formed. Um, we consider that a result of historical critical scholarship. But I think that our pre-modern writers, uh, Jewish and Christian writers uh, uh, from from late antiquity and the early Middle Ages also had the sense that their scriptures had a history. Um, they had a sense that their literature is not complete. They had a sense that their scripture did not make it, did not survive from antiquity unscathed, that uh, there is a long history of loss and recovery and reconstruction. For example, stories about Ezra who becomes the great salvager of literature that was almost destroyed during the Babylonian exile. Um, we've got this uh, this narrative that, that scriptures did not actually just uh, completely survive to our time. Narratives about Hezekiah, who is uh, both the great transmitter of, especially of Solomonic, but also Isaianic and Davidic literature, um, but he's also the great censor who uh, suppressed or limited or shortened uh, parts of, uh, of authentic uh, ancient text into what we have now. We have the same sense that people are really, in a sense, doing philology, doing their own kind of native theories of where they think scriptures came from. And so uh, our sense that, that, that the process of canonization, of scripturalization is historical and has to do with institutions and decisions and hierarchies is not just our modern idea. This is also uh, the idea that many of our pre-modern informants had. And so I think that's, uh, 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 that's a direction that would be really interesting to pursue. I want to thank Dr. Ava Mrocek for joining us on New Book Networks, New Books Network. Uh, once again, her work is The Literary Imagination in Jewish Antiquity, out now from Oxford University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.